Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Political Football, the new podcast that digs into the global political stories behind the sport. I'm Jason Cowley, editor of The New Statesman. And I'm Stephen Bush, special correspondent at The New Statesman. This is a special series devoted to the 2018 World Cup. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be following all the action in Russia and analysing it with our guests. And our first guest today is John Bute, Professor of History and Foreign Policy in the War Studies Department at King's London and one of our favourite writers. And John's here to discuss the history of the World Cup, how globalisation has changed the World Cup and anything else you want to talk about, John. Welcome. So, Stephen, are you looking forward to the tournament? I think it begins on Thursday this week. Yeah, so much to my surprise, I'm usually, I usually take a while to get into a World Cup because this is going to sound really silly, but I never really enjoy them until I get a sense of what their narrative is, you know, like who the World Cup's villain is, who the teams you're rooting for are, how England are going to do if they're participating. And slightly to my surprise, this time I am I am actually quite excited about it, despite my kind of general cynicism about the World Cup as a, a tournament. And John, what about the fact it's held in... Um... Putin's Russia. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a lot of World Cups have been political beforehand and, and there's a lot of focus on this. To, 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 we're in this weird situation where our own Foreign Affairs Committee released a report last week warning about the problems that England fans travelling around following England may face in Russia. So there's there's a shadow of hooliganism, which is kind of gives it a retro, unfortunate retro 70s, 80s feel. There's the ostracisation of Russia. Um, there's no sort of big game on the horizon like Iran versus USA that you've had a, a previous World Cup. So the group stages don't throw up any of those sort of geopolitical clashes. Um, but that sort of mood music is in the background and, and there's certain questions over, over you know, how the thing's going to play out. And then there's a sort of the doping thing, Russia's involvement in do- doping. Additionally, so it's not only Russia as a geopolitical uh, mischief maker, there's also Russia as the country with this odd relationship with sport. All that having been said, all that scepticism, I can't help but get excited a week before the World Cup and I, it just all kind of falls out the window. And, I, and when people were suggesting perhaps that England should withdraw from the World Cup, I, I, you know, I'm a Northern Ireland fan, but I, even then I was, I was slightly panicky and thought, no, 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 please don't ruin our summer. Yeah, this was in the aftermath of the Salisbury poisoning. And Stephen, I think that would have been a, a disastrous mistake by Theresa May, wouldn't it, if she'd pulled the England football team out of the World Cup while the rest of the, rest of the world was there enjoying, enjoying the opportunity to play football. 
even though they're playing football in Putin's Russia? I mean, surely that was the right decision to send the England team. I actually crunched the numbers on this because obviously this argument of it handing him a propaganda victory and you kind of ask yourself how much that really matters in a, a managed democracy to use the kind of Chatham House definition of what uh, of how Russia's uh, politics work. And actually, when you look at the performance of incumbent governments after World Cups, there is no evidence that you know, they receive any kind of internal political boost. Um, and also, I, I would have... I would have missed the opportunity to watch England go out limply at the quarterfinals. So, <laughs> well, I think we'll hold on our England predictions for now. But you're, although you've given us an early indication as to what you're thinking, John, what are you, you talk about the geopolitics of the World Cup? I mean, football has become one of the supreme instruments of soft power. For, for Putin, it's not about the football. You know what happens on the pitch. What it is about having the whole jamboree take place on Russian soil. Similarly, for the Qataris, who will be hosting it in four years, it's 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 a statement of intent, isn't it? It is. Um, that having been said, I think past World Cups don't quite compare to Olympics. Olympics, mm. ironically, while they're supposed to be more international, actually, you know, host nations often have tried to own them as prestige thing. Also, Winter Olympics in, in recent Russian case as well. Actually, it's hard to think of a previous World Cup in which someone's managed to sort of dominate the narrative. Um, and I don't know if that, you know, is because football has a kind of democratic quality to it or it's just so international it can't be owned like that. But I'm actually struggling. To, I'm racking my brain thinking of a, of a really highly politicised World Cup. Well, there was Argentina 78. Yeah, well, which had a lot, you know, a lot of a political background and, and, and issues to it. But was was that quite owned in the same way? I Not mean, in the yeah, same yeah. way. And then I remember, I'm older than you too, I remember the World Cup in Germany in 74, West Germany, when Germany was um, divided, of course. And there was a famous encounter during that World Cup where West Germany played East Germany. East Germany had also qualified. And the East Germans beat the West Germans 1-0. I mean, I remember as a very young boy watching that game on television. Whether it was a, it was a huge geopolitical moment, I don't think so. Aren't we witnessing an evolution of the World Cup to becoming something much closer to the Olympics? The weird thing is, is that one of the reasons why Argentina 78 was dominant is Argentina were a much better team than this Russia side. So one of the slightly weird things about it is that barring a miracle Russia's participation in this World Cup rather like South Africa's in 2010 is likely to be brief the only thing is they've got quite an easy group yeah. um, that's that's the, my only caveat but I'm sorry I'll, I'll hand over to yeah, it's true. They, they, they do have quite an easy group so it's a possible but even so you know they're the weakest team according to FIFA rankings in the continent but we do seem to be entering an era where well I guess we've seen it already in the club game if we think about uh, the Premier League where Two of the sort of most dominant clubs in the last decade are owned by uh, oligarchs of one shape or another. They have become rich man's playthings. So I guess the kind of use of it as a reputation laundering is going to become more acute. Weirdly, I feel a lot more uncomfortable about the Qatar World Cup than this one. The treatment of workers in the construction of those facilities just makes it so hard and for me impossible to disentangle the tournament in Qatar from the awfulness of uh, the regime there, whereas I'm less bothered by um, the Russian World Cup, but that may, of course, just be me being wet. I think that's a, a, a fair enough comment, actually. I mean, also, Russia is historically a big beast in football. I mean, it's had a you know, bad 20 years or so, but does have you know serious Champions League teams as well and, and, and sort of can make a decent play. The Qatari World Cup, and without getting too, too much details on the sort of corruption charges, you can make a legitimate case for Russia as a World Cup. And, and also, when they applied, the situation with Putin wasn't so fractious with the rest of the West. Also, you know, the World Cup is not the West preserve. Qatar is something a little bit more dodgy 
and 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 you know even illogical given that you're going to have 42 degree um, heat in the midst of although the they're going to move it to the autumn, aren't they? It's going to be in effect. It's going to be a winter a winter World Cup. I think it's November or December. It's going to be hosted in Qatar when the temperatures will be what 21, 22. But, but what a disastrous thing to move our World Cup from the you yeah. know from the from the summer to the winter. But the whole the, point of it is to keep us alive and keep us interested during the summer. But this indeed, but this is the consequence of what what, what has happened to football and particularly the way that FIFA has run under the regime of. Blatter, who, as you know, is associated with any number of corruption charges at present. Absolutely. I mean, actually, in that sense, you have to give the Premier League some credit as compared to a lot of other national leagues. It's things it does that are, that are you know, flawed. And I think taking away from them the, the national game is one of them. And you can see a relatively weak, a pretty weak England team, partly because of that. That having been said, if you compare it to, for example, the Spanish le- uh, League, uh, you know, the, the, the spread of football money across the board has created a kind of a, a, you know, in a sense that Manchester United and Liverpool, if they're in another national league, would take all the, you know, the, I'm sorry, Arsenal as well, I know with two Arsenal fans, but the big clubs would take all the TV money. Premier League's actually hand, handed out things a little bit, you know, a little, a little bit more um, uh, generously across the board. So, you know, in that sense, you know, be thankful with their own institution. FIFA and UEFA has its difficulties as well. These, these, these supranational governing bodies have been hugely problematic for the direction of the game over the last 25 years. Just on the Russia's group, I've just got my little um, guide here, one of the supplements that are falling out of the newspapers. The Russia, Russia's group, Group A, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Uruguay. So an easy group? Who said it was an easy group? I think it's a relatively easy group. Do you? For a home nation. Yeah, I don't... I mean, Egypt, it, it, Egypt have went, the brilliant Salah if he's fit. But he is he fit. The even more brilliant El Neni, the Arsenal midfielder. Yeah, of course. Well, obviously, yeah, with, the, with the great El Neni, you'd... Yeah, that team's going to carry all for it. I mean, it feels to me that the kind of... I'm not going to pretend I have any inside track into what goes on in Egypt's training uh, squad, but this whole kind of background noise of, oh, you know, he, he'll probably be properly fit for the second game, he, but he won't be quite fit for the first game. I just... I can already feel that what will happen is Salah will play all three games and he clearly won't be fit for any of them. Uh, and uh, it will be, I think, a slightly sad uh, subplot to the tournament as a whole. But equally, I still think Egypt are a better team even without their star player than Russia. Uruguay are obviously a better team than... I think Russia are in trouble in this group, John. I mean, uh, Uruguay, I presume, Suarez is fit. I mean, he knocked England out last time around, four years ago, with with a... Playing on in effect on one leg. I mean, he had a chronically injured knee, but he still managed to score two goals and knock England out. So I think Russia may be in trouble. The opening game is spectacularly uninteresting. It's Russia versus Saudi Arabia. I don't think I'll be watching that one. Will you yeah, jump? well, if Russia, Russia should beat Saudi Arabia first game, three points, um, then what have they got to do? You know, a, a draw or a draw and a win of the, of the other two games. Um, I, I, th- I think they've got a decent chance. Egypt also don't travel well. They also scrape through the last minute penalty by Mo Salah. They don't play with the same sort of fluency that, that um, you know, his goal, his goal scoring record for Egypt, you know, understandably isn't, isn't as effective. What he does, Salah, for the Egyptian national team is kind of, bear the weight of emotional responsibility and that's the, the penalty scored in qualifying it's most I, I recommend anyone listening to this podcast to YouTube it has a kind of incredible outpouring of emotion but beyond that I, I think the Egyptian team are actually pretty, pretty weak and a, and a you know a home nation psyched up home nation should be able to you know at, li- at least get that draw if not win a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Another thing that's slightly disappointed me about this World Cup, when you look at the timing of the games, they're at sort of 1pm, 4pm when we're at work, and then 7pm. I often like the rhythm of a World Cup where, particularly those Southern, South American World Cups, where you, you watch, watch a game about 10, 7.45 and then there's another game at 10.45 in the evening. I, 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 like, I used to really like that. I was thinking particularly the year I took my A-levels, which would have been when, 1986. That was during a World Cup. And I, used to, I very much enjoyed the late match at about 10.45 in the evening, having done a little bit of revision, reluctantly, and then gone downstairs and watched a match. The Mexico World Cup, that was? The Mexico World Cup, where Gary Lineker was was leading the England attack. Are you you looking forward to what I call the rhythm of a World Cup, Stephen? Live matches on BBC, ITV, the the chatter in the paper, the chat on podcasts, the emergence of possible players you don't know about? Well, similarly, the um, I prefer one where it's on the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah. That was the great thing about 2014. Not least, actually, the other fun thing about 2014 is uh, lots of European embassies were gearing up to do a charm offensive with kind of various pro-European journalists to try and keep us in the EU, which obviously didn't work quite so well from a soft power perspective. But it did mean that I got to see a lot of those games in in the host country, as it were. So I was in Germany when they put seven past Brazil and it was a wonderful party atmosphere and it was... You were in the German embassy. In the German embassy. Yeah, when it happened. yeah so technically, yeah. from a legal perspective, if I had committed a in crime Germany. in that embassy, I would have been in Germany. <laughs> um, but because it's at 1 and 4 p.m., well, I feel I can't really say in this building, yes, I am planning to, to sack, <laughs> sack off work at crucial moments to, to watch the 1 and 4 p.m. games. So it won't have quite the same rhythm. I am planning to watch the opening game because I, I always feel you've got to watch the opening game to kind of get into the the rhythm of it. But I think also the other sad thing in terms of, um, yeah, the stuff we've been talking about in terms of globalisation and its impact on the game, although I love the Champions League, it has, I think, uh, hurt the World Cup quite badly in two ways. The first is the, the excitement of World Cup's past, of teams coming from strange parts of the country, playing strange, same parts of the world, playing strange formations. Um, everyone is basically going to play 4-2-3-1 or some variation on Juve's back three, as, as England are. So you don't have that kind of weird and wonderfulness. And it's not the pinnacle of, of the sport. The Champions League final, despite the goalkeeping not being the pinnacle of the sport by any stretch of the imagination, is the pinnacle of it as a kind of athletic and sporting excellence, which does take away from the the joy of the World Cup. And I think will be even more of a problem in Qatar when it will be in that old slot than did so much harm to the African Cup of Nations. 
Yeah, that is a that is a good point, John. I think, isn't it? The with those of us who watch the Champions League, as uh, as we three do, we're so familiar with the players, and especially if you even watch the early group stages of the of the Champions League, when you maybe watch the lesser clubs who don't end up in the quarterfinals or the semifinals, but some of the Portuguese clubs, for example, or some of the Dutch clubs, you you become familiar with the emerging talent in the game, as well as of course the big stars. I guess the player last time round that surprised me I didn't know a lot about was James Rodriguez, a name I can't even pronounce now, who I think was then was then play, Colombian player was then playing with he Monaco, went to Monaco to Madrid, and, and then Bayern. he ended up at Madrid. He's now at Bayern. I thought he was sensationally good last time round, but are you are you concerned about that? There are players out there that uh, might surprise you, or you, do you think you know? Everyone. Uh, no, I mean, to Stephen's point, you're unlikely to get the sort of Cameroon of, of, of Italia 1990 who came in yeah. and sort of just knocked everyone over. Yes. And, and of course, in that famous first game against Argentina went, you know, went pretty far in terms of stretching England as well. I mean, really exciting All the way team. to the quarterfinals. All the way England. to the quarterfinals. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that, 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 I think that's less likely, that sort of, you know, clash of footballing styles. Um, uh, you'd hope someone sort of would, you know, come from left field. That haven't been said. I mean, if you take the sort of last 10, 15 years of Euros and World Cups, you do get surprise packages, you know, you get the Portugals who, you know, mm. actually beyond Ronaldo and a few other players are competent, technical, but not full of, you know. Well, they, they um, kind of bored their way to the Euro victory, didn't they? They were, I mean, they well, were. so did they, Greece. They, so so yeah. did Greece, yeah. 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 Um, and, and, and you have a Brazil team actually playing pretty well and confident. It's sorted out, I think, it's centre-halves, which it had yes. that problem at the last World Cup. Um um, and actually do play with a sense of romance. Fran- French football team at the moment, in terms of the, the way they play, the attacking flair and pace is actually pretty exciting as well. So, so I mean, you, you know, oddly, some of these World Cups, some of them are viewed with nostalgia. People incredibly tell me, I was 10 years old during 1990 and I watched every single game. Um, but actually people tell me now it was a really defensive World Cup. And then you had a player like Toto Scalacci who came from absolutely nowhere. He was the last choice in the squad and through various injuries suddenly had this wonderful World Cup. The, the, Sicilian, the Sicilian player. Yeah, yeah, and he went to Milan and um, you know had a couple of big transfers and barely did anything thereafter. So you, you do get the surprise package. James yes. Rodriguez has not, has not been fantastic since then. Uh, and you do get those sort of national teams. You see it at the South Americans in particular. I guess um, also last time round, the, the Chile side... Exactly. I saw them, they came to Wembley just before the tournament in a friendly and completely destroyed England, playing an extraordinarily energetic, high-pressing style of a kind that I hadn't really seen. And we, we, were, we were, you know, Alexis Sanchez, Arturo Vidal, that side. People were stunned by that Chile side. And they were brilliant for the first two games at the World Cup last time round. And in the end, went out, I think, very unluckily to Brazil. But they they were a surprise package to me, Stephen. I don't know about you last time. Yes, I suppose Chile were a surprise package in terms of their kind of quality. I guess in 2010, Germany being exciting and not dour was a surprise to a lot of people. But... Yeah, I just feel you don't get the kind of same sort of... And, you know, maybe we'll be looking back in three weeks' time and, you know, Nigeria will have found a way to make it click and we'll be going, oh, gosh, you know, don't I feel silly now? But it just feels like that kind of thing doesn't happen in the same way because the game is so much more globalised and, you know, kind of almost everyone plays uh, in the same way. Before we could talk about World Cup's past, I think we should have a little nostalgia section before we finish this first podcast. Should we just briefly talk about England? What do you think of the setup under Gareth Southgate, John? 
Uh, I'm not so into the idea that Gareth Southgate suddenly is the thinking man's manager. Um, <laughs> we, we do like to, in this country, sort of get excited about sort of narratives. The current narrative is that he's more philosophical and reflective. Um, and therefore, There's a story you know, in the paper today by someone who used to know him when he was young. He said he, he ought to go away and become a travel agent. Okay, well, travel agent. I, I, the usual thing is a sort of the hint of one of these managers reading The Guardian suddenly becomes <laughs> immensely sophisticated. Um, I remember that of Brian McClare many years ago when it was revealed he read The Guardian. And Graham Lasso uh, too. Graham Lasso, another one. Um, so, I mean, I think there's sort of a, a, a tendency to get carried away with the narrative. Well, he's slightly, I mean, he's fallen upon a formation and he's going to run with the formation. So I give him kudos for that. But I mean, Roy Hodgson... But for, isn't it uh, the formation that Aston Villa played... What in the late eighties, early nineties? It's a it's a it's a it's a, trans, it's a basically re up version of Terry Terry Venable's Christmas tree formation yes. from um um from Euro ninety six is yes. an element of that. Um, but you know he's he's sort of running with it. But I mean there was no, there was no master plan. He found he found the the, the the solution or his solution sort of halfway through um, qualifying. And even now there are unresolved questions over whether you play someone along with Henderson, where you can have uh, Dele Ali and Lingard on the pitch. So um, you know I, I'm not convinced he's so there's some sort of hidden genius or, you know, unhatched talent behind it all. That having been said, every time, every World Cup, the law of averages, if you think about it, England does have good quality players who in other national teams would be pretty effective and, you know, probably the best, most on-form striker in Harry Kane, real talent off the bench like Rashford, Sterling, you can't argue with the scoring record this season, I think Jamie Vardy's dangerous, I think England's got a weak goalkeeper. But I but also think it's not inconceivable, you know, the English team can do, you know, can do very well this year just by law of averages and, and by one other by very thing, well is it Stevens last eight um, I, I think if you get to the last eight then suddenly it's all open there's no there's, there's no reason why England can't beat a spin um, I haven't studied my that. route to the final and I promise listeners I will do for next week when I had an early look at this some weeks ago it looked to me as if England may play either Brazil or Germany in the quarterfinal if, if all goes well yeah, and but I think at the point you get to the quarterfinals, right? They're all they're all difficult games. I agree that it feels that Southgate has found a system that fits the players he has semi by accident, but at least he does have a system that does seem to fit the players he has. You don't feel that this is an England side which just cannot score more than one goal a game to save its life, and they do have. They don't have the softest route to the, to the semis. I think it's Argentina of, of all of the group, the teams who have got a really quite la- easy route to to the last uh, to the final four. But they do have had quite a good route to the the last eight. Uh, there are lots of good attacking players uh, coming off the bench. Belgium look quite strong. I can't. It feels to me unlikely that this England team can beat the best of the best. Belgium but, underperform though, don't they? The Euros they they were knocked out by the Welsh heroically by the Welsh, well, they reached the semi-final. So Belgium do seem to have a problem at underperforming. Is it, is it also to do with the politics of Belgium, being that this is called political football, the idea that Belgium itself is a kind of pseudo-state, John? Uh, I actually don't think the policy. I mean, actually, you can say that of other teams. It used to be you said of that, Spain that it wasn't a homogenous nation. Yeah, or, and therefore, or the, the, but, the but, cliques in the Dutch national team. Sometimes yes. they had sort of, you know, racial associations too. Yes. I, I mean, the Belgium's problems, I think, are footballing. Belgium has lots of problems as a state. But I mean, the issues now are, are, are to do with managers in football. So this week he wants to play uh, Martinez, the, the Belgian manager, wants yes. to play um, De Bruyne quite deep. 
so we can allow these other players in position. Is this the, for, the former manager of Everton? Former Wigan. manager of Everton, who who a lot of the, the players don't quite respect. Yes. And, and uh, Lukaku's had a brush with yes. Nangalan, the really effective, wonderful Roma midfielders, not in the squad They've as well. They've left him out, yeah. Um, so I, I think I think these these are footballing problems. Last time they played Hazard in the centre of midfield, and they couldn't get the most out of him. Um, they made them more effective in sort of in, in qualifying, and then they then they well actually they were very good in qualifying last time as well. So yeah, I don't think those are those are the sort of footballing um, issues. You do get them. In, in, in football teams as well. Just back in England, one point I think, which is different than than uh, previous years. They list, they look less less exhausted going into uh, World Cup. You, you remember those World Cups are sort of Scholes, Lampard, and 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 Gerard always looking quite tired after a Champions League semi final. Is that because some of the players haven't been playing twice a week? Well, I mean Henderson's been season. playing. Henderson's been playing a lot, and a, and a lot depends on his energy. But yeah, Rashford is sort of raring to go. Kane, Lingard's the, been the, in and out, uh, in and out the team. They're not sort of burned out. Um, Harry Kane, Kane had, was injured. It was injured, he? which sometimes can be a blessing in disguise, um, but seems to have, you know come back relatively sharply. And it is due an effective World Cup, isn't that effective in, in sort of national tournaments so far? Um, so that's sort of, and also you do have energy at fullback, and and you know that's a crucial part of the thing, up and down the pitch, and you know he's he's put you know middle of a room in his squad for pace. And I like, areas, I like so. Carl Walker a lot. I think he's a he's a phenomenal athlete, and he's he's learned a lot playing under Pep at City, and I know Southgate looks like he's going to play him on the right of a back three, in other words, as a as a roving centre back bombing down the right flank but with a right fullback advance to his right as it were i think he's a, i think he's a phenomenal athlete but stephen what do you make of southgate rather polite young man well spoken has a neat little beard at the moment people people have often said he's a lightweight and he's weak but he came out of that incredibly tough crystal palace dressing room ian wright mark bright you know very dynamic palace team from the Late eighties, early nineties. So he's no, he's no fool or no stooge. And I think Ian Wright, you know, he's, it's tough to earn the respect of Ian Wright. Wrighty respects him. So what do you think of Southgate? I admire him for, yeah, kind of rehabilitating himself after being relegated with Middlesbrough. He's talked a lot about how he's talked a lot about that summer where he had to go around the club firing people because they went down and how it, uh, it shaped him. I like that he's um, uh, been very protective of Raheem Sterling while the tabloids have been doing this kind of sort of typical thing of finding a scapegoat in the England uh, squad to attack. And I do think, although I have my doubts about how he arrived at that system, right, the, the back three is a good system for England. And I think it's positive that he's come up through this system that Dan Ashworth and everyone else at the FA seems to have invested a lot of faith in, of having the youth team, the under-21, and the men's team play a similar system. So you have kind of a a philosophy and not just a kind of like, let's try and bung all of our best players into whatever the fashionable formation of the week is, which does seem to be a little bit Belgium's problem, right? It doesn't make any sense to me why they're playing that back three other than the Juventus and uh, City have had quite a bit of success with back threes recently. Well, England has the advantage of it has less superstars to squeeze into a team. Um, I worry about that English back three. I mean, I like the system. I think Cal Walker has got recovery, um, but you can cover him, at, cover him at right back. And it's different playing for Pep City when you have 90% of the ball um, than it is, it is for England when often they've 
struggle to keep the ball. And I think in some games they will struggle to keep the ball. I think Walker is very poor at playing offside. I like Harry Maguire a lot. He's probably going to play him as well. He's sort of physical. The, but the Leicester City stopper, although yeah. he, as I understand it, he played every single game for Leicester last season, and they certainly leaked a lot of goals. They leaked a lot of goals. I mean, he was um, you know playing alongside a, a, a defence that should have been updated three years ago yes. um, or two years ago when they won the. What about Premier John League? Stones? Who seems to make? He's not going to be in the team. I don't think. Don't, um, I think he might start. He's very good on the ball, but he. We'll see if he's in the team or not, but he makes a lot of mistakes, doesn't he? I think he's like to play Cahill, Cahill Maguire and Walker as okay. three. Um, but, um, I mean, who knows? And who on the left, who will be on the left? Um, he can play Trippier, I think. The, no, uh, Trippier is on so the Trippier right. So Trippier is on the right. Uh, on the left will be... Um, Surely it's not Ashley Young, is it? It will be Ashley Young, I think, at the moment. I mean, yeah. you're a Manchester United fan, but from what I've watched of Ashley Young over the years, when he was at Villa and then since he's been at United, he just always comes back onto his right foot. He does, but this is this this is the issue with the left with the left wing back. But actually, he puts in a lot of crosses. Good, very good assist rate at United this year. Um, so you don't think it's Danny Rose, the Spurs left hasn't back, hasn't played enough this season. No, has he? Yeah. no, I think it will be Young as first choice. He has played more, and I think also the, one of the slight weirdnesses of international football is it's slightly more acceptable to have teams that are weirdly lopsided because you do have lots of teams which are fairly weak down the left. Obviously, Sterling gives you an outlet up front, but I assume that. If you kind of imagine, uh, you know, the kind of heat map, I assume England's heat map will be weirdly lopsided to the right side just because so many of our best players are right-sided at the moment. And so you kind of just have to kind of make the best of it. And we we don't have many top-class English players, unfortunately. I mean, the globalisation of the English league means it's very difficult for English players to get into the, the very best sides. But you wonder who's missing I would like to have seen Oxley chamberlain there, but of course he's injured. He was beginning to look like a very good player under Klopp. Jack Wilshere wasn't selected. Some say England's potentially their best ball-playing midfielder. I'm not so sure nowadays. I mean, he looks to me, the injuries have taken a heavy toll. But Stephen, is there anyone you you feel we're missing who could have who could have been at the World Cup who's not? Um, I think in terms of that system, actually, I do think, although I don't think Wilshere should start, and I agree that he doesn't look like the player he was. The question I have about this England side is if it's minute 70 and they're down to 10 or they just want to hold onto the ball or, or, or defend, weirdly, it's not an England team that you can really imagine outscoring a lot of teams, but I find it hard to work out how it's going to avoid conceding late on. And the advantage of Wilshere, and it's sad to say say this because this is not what I would hope I'd be saying about him at 26, is he is someone who can at least bring a measure of ball retention to a side, which is something I think this England team is going to struggle to do. I think that's the kind of unanswered question is whether he plays someone alongside Henderson who puts Dyer in there or, or, or someone else. Um, in the last game, when everyone was sort of talking confidently about it, they played, they played um, um, Lingard and Ali sort of going forward. It's quite an attacking formation. I think England will concede goals. I think the goalkeeper situation is not... A, 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 it's not I mean, getting rid of Joe Hart has been a sensible... A sensible um, thing to do because he's been disastrous in the last few tournaments. That having been said, you know that that the, those coming in are not effective. I think he'll pick, pick Pickford because he's uh, better with his feet. As far as I can see, the last ten games of the season, balls are just flying past Pickford, and he did this um, uh, Paul Robinson thing of di- diving after the ball's gone in the goal. <laughs> um, I, I think that is a weakness for England. And, and I mean, that having been said, in World Cups you do get these you know teams doing incredibly well with lunatic goalkeepers who try yes. and Renny Higuita types or uh, <laughs> who try try and play the ball in the halfway line. So you know, but but so I, you I don't think, think Pickford will do a scorpion at some point. Uh, possibly, scorpion kick, possibly. I mean, that that'll make the World Cup for me. Um, I think this is a this is a solid England sign, not not inspiring. I think Harry Kane's potentially 
a great striker. Whether he will deliver at the tournament remains to be seen. Um, you know, I'm quite excited to see them. What I understand from sports writers who've been hanging around the camp is that they're a decent bunch. They're, they've been open. They're, they haven't got some of the swagger of the players of the past, despite their astounding wealth and comfort. And do you like do you like this group? Do you think they're a decent group of guys? Do you... They do seem quite likable. I mean, it's the kind of sadness of, say, Welbeck, for example, is that I don't think he is quite ever going to make it as a top, top player, but he just seems like a really nice bloke. And then obviously ones who clearly are top players like Raheem Sterling, there was a wonderful thread being shared by one of the Manchester Evening News's uh, stories about how, you know, when he first met at City, he was the only footballer he'd ever seen who cleared, helped the PR clear the chairs away afterwards. And I think Raheem Sterling seems like a, a really decent guy who's dealt with a lot of extracurricular nonsense from some bits of the press. Uh, and it just seems on the whole quite a likeable team. I mean, it's quite nice knowing that there won't be an England team with John Terry in it, which always kind of did slightly spoil the experience of watching England. Yeah, I think there's less less of a hierarchy in this England team. I mean, beforehand, you did have this sort of want, wannabe or self-regarding Galacticos, even if they seemed okay, like Gerard and, you know, like Frank Lampard's turned into a decent fella after after sort of early And there was career, always an uh, obsession with skirts. one player, Beckham, you know, Gaza in the past, Paul Gascoigne, then Beckham, the whole the whole celebrity cult around Beckham, which I find deeply tedious, and then Ro- Ro- Rooney more recently. And Harry Kane, who's obviously, you would say is perhaps the main man, um, because of his goal-scoring record for Spurs and also he's the captain, seems like a very kind of modest modest young man indeed, rather, rather humble and thoroughly decent. Yeah, I think There may be a right. big expose on him coming in a few few yeah. days, which I don't know about, and this may be completely absurd, but as, as things stand, he seems to be a decent young man. I think that's the, the kiss of death, so something might happen. <laughs> I mean, the problem, there's, there's an additional challenge which he's got the captaincy now as well, which which is a sort of additional burden. Um, and there's a weird thing that England players do sort of following the, the Terry Butcher folklore of getting overhyped for games. You'd see it with Joe Hart in the tunnel beforehand, and I hope this England team doesn't sort of fall into that trap. Because that's why they collapsed against Iceland last time. It's, you know, overhype and it's not that they're not committed or, or or psyched up which is the kind of national criticism you know guys don't care enough is it that is it that you know they, they forget to do the things to win um and i think that that's my concern about this england team okay well when we reconvene for the second podcast england would have played their first game so we'll talk a little bit more about england but before we go on this first podcast we'll have a very brief nostalgia section i think World Cup's past Stephen, do you have a particular favorite yeah so i think my favorite world cup and this is where I'm going to annoy everyone else, I guess, by showing my... Actually, I think it's probably 98. It was just after uh, Wenger had arrived and we'd won that double for the first time. It had a number of exciting French players in it. Looking back, of course, I realised that there's the slight taintedness and, and this is what I'm going to air my kind of first conspiracy theory of, of this podcast, which is that I am certain the French government poisoned Ronaldo, Right. When you think about it, they had the motive. We know they've done dodgy things to the global south before, and it makes sense. That would explain why he played so badly. But other than that, 98... Those rumours persist as well, yeah, that he yeah, was yeah. he was poisoned before yeah. the final. Yeah, 98 was, other than, you know, the bit where the deep state interfered to make Brazil lose, it was a great World Cup. I loved watching it. It's my memory of the first bet I ever wore, uh, won on football. Uh, Did you back football. France to win? I backed France to win. Well, from the beginning of the tournament? Because they had a lot of Arsenal players. They yeah. did, yeah. So Petit and Vieira and Vieira others, yeah. And, this young winger from Juventus called Thierry Henry. So I was very excited by by them as a, an idea. Except okay, Henry hadn't joined yet, of course. But um, yes, yeah, so I was very excited by France and I thought they would win because they had some Arsenal players in them. And they did. That's, I think, the last World Cup where I've correctly... 
No, uh, it was also player. in that sense it was a, it was a memorable World Cup, not least for the French victory, but but also because the French side seemed to represent all facets of France. There were French Africans, French Caribbeans, French Arabs, famously with Zidane at the centre of the team. There was a Breton, Givache. There was a Basque, Les Azereux in that team. It was an extraordinary reflection of France as a, as a nation and, a, and the French people. Is that, is that fair to say, John? Yeah, I think it did have that sort of feel to it, the, the sort of South Africa World Cup feel. I mean, not quite the sort of same healing uh, um, occasion, but actually it did have that. And, and people made sort of quite a lot of it politically at the time. They did, yeah. Um, because France saying. is often, particularly with the Bonheur and some of the events we've seen subsequently. And I, mean, the, that, I mean, that's the thing. What I also thought is, is subsequently that it didn't set France in no, any healthier it course. But, but at it, the time, yeah. there was this great um, flourishing, particularly the, around the figure of Zidane, the French Algerian, because of the traumas of the Algerian civil war. And here was here was someone leading from the front who was proudly a French Algerian. And that was a moment of great national celebration. Obviously, what one now sees the fractures in the French in the French state. Yeah, but but actually a wonderful football team um, that that sort of you know has that precedent to to build upon. Um, so I mean, I, I mean, I actually fancy the French. It's not a this time original around. thing to say. What about well. your? What Stephen mentioned France '98 as a tournament he 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 particularly enjoyed. What about you? So this is all probably related to age, I'm sure. Yeah. But this um, uh, Italian 1990 had Pavarotti doing the theme tune. It had um, Galacci bursting onto the scene. It had a wonderful Brazilian side. I remember had 24 shots on target um, against um, Argentina, who had one, but stole it in the last minute. Um, had players like Kinija, Baggio with his socks pulled down before UEFA told you, and FIFA said you had to have shin guards. Um, you know, it had an awful, ugly final with spitting uh, and everything like that. But it, but it was a, you know, a, a, a really boring final. But actually, I thought that tournament was. It also know, had kind of, an epic semi-final, England Germany. Yeah, um, an England side that improved as the tournament went on. Bobby Robson, the coach, stumbled upon a new system playing Mark Wright as sweeper. Do you yeah. remember? And you know, Gary Lineker was scoring goals. David Platt was scoring goals and it was quite an exciting England team that was getting better. They were lucky against Cameroon in the quarterfinal when they won 3-2. Des Walker, Des Walker's pace player. at the back. Yeah, Paul, yeah, Paul yeah. Parker had yeah. a very good tournament at the back. And then this epic semi-final against Germany, Italia 90. I mean, an epic season that um, even today I'm pained to think about it because we lost in a in a penalty shootout very traumatically and we would have been up against a very poor Argentina side in the final and I think we would have beaten them yeah yeah I mean that's the definitional you know that's that's the the DNA of, of modern British football's Italian 90 right where where you know England play heroically there's a player like Gaza who bursts onto the scene um, there are the one difference is no Rolls Royce defenders but there were Rolls Royce defenders heroic goalkeeping you know, a, 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 an exciting team, and it hasn't sort of been like that. Well, since. some people say it was a very poor, poor tournament overall. Yeah, I mean, I, I still I can't don't remember quite believe it. Being that. So, yeah. um, no, no, but that, that was the sort of line. It was very defensive. Obviously, the Italian team scored the scratch, would score these wonderful goals from thirty yards. But actually, it wasn't that fluent or fluid a team. Brazil were the most exciting team. We were kind of had it, had it robbed. I remember crying when Brazil were beaten by Argentina. Um, but that says it gives you investment. And also, Cameroon were wonderful and exciting. Wonderful team. Um, and, and, and you know, led, led by Roger Miller, Stephen. You're aware yeah. of Roger Miller, this kind of veteran striker. Yeah, 42 or 40, something. Well, they say he was 42, 38, 42, whatever he was. He was he was older than your average footballer and had a, had a tremendous tournament and used to celebrate with this little dance around one of the flagpoles. They were they were a terrific side and very unlucky to go out to England in, in the quarterfinals. And we're still, Stephen, awaiting our first winner from Africa. 
Pele used to predict there would be an African winner, didn't he, by the turn of the 21st century? Well, that that hasn't happened. I can't see a, an African team winning this tournament in 2018. Can you? No, I mean it depends. You can so Nigeria, as is typical for the Super Group, go into the tournament in with some slightly difficult internal stuff going on. Uh, they have a new-ish coach. They do, I think, have the players to do it other than in, in goal. One of the slight mysteries of African football is not it has never produced a, a top-class goalkeeper. There's a thing I always notice uh, watching watching AFCON is su- the surprisingly poor quality of, of, of goalkeeping. But I do think Nigeria could, if they click, do it. Of course, I mean, that is the the curse of Jose Mourinho is destroying one of the most exciting, creative uh, African players in John Obi Mikel to turn him into a kind of bog average uh, holding player has really hurt the Nigerian national side. It's odd. So I uh, obviously have no direct memories of uh, of Italia 90 uh, being, you know, very, very, very newborn at that point. But the <laughs> weird thing about looking at the lineup for it, and indeed um, Euro 96, which I do remember, is the thing about those successful England teams is they had players who played for teams outside of England. You had Lineker, who, of course, had, were, had you know, left England. You had Platt, who'd been at Lazio. You had... You had yeah, I think there's something interesting. As and Weirdly, we talk about the globalised game. Have, Platt actually went after the yeah. tournament. He was, he, in 90, he was at Villa. Yeah. And then he went to Bari. Yeah. And then to Juventus. With Gaza and Walker. Yeah, but you're right. There was, yeah. there was a generation of players, particularly because of Italia 90 and how well they performed, then went to Italy, which was then the dominant the dominant league. Walker went to Sampdoria. That's right. And yeah. actually was destroyed as a player, I think, as a consequence. Yeah. Platt was very successful in Italy, particularly he got a transfer to Juventus. And then he, he also went to Sampdoria, I think, when Svenjan Eriksson was the coach there. And now is your concern that England players are just stuck in England? Yeah, I think, yeah, kind of in terms of we talked about Jack Wilshire in part one, right? But um, one of Jack's sort of problems, right? He was offered the chance to go on loan to Bournemouth and then loan to Milan and he went to Bournemouth. And I kind of think he might be a better player if he'd gone to Milan. And there's a weird Brexit parallel, right? Then in the 80s, you had Alf Wiedersen Pet people using their free movement rights to leave the United Kingdom. And in 2016, you have the United Kingdom deciding, okay, I'll be by a very narrow minority that free movement was a problem that needed to be managed away with all of the negative consequences that has for our economy and our productivity. And I do think the failure, not just of England players, but England managers, right? You know, Brian Robson had been, had already been at Barcelona, right, by Italy, Italia 1990? Bobby Robson. Bobby Robson, yeah. yeah. Um, I think he went not long after, after, but he had 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 been managing the continent. Yeah. He, yeah, he went to the Netherlands, then Portugal, and then ultimately to Barcelona. But we're going to need to check our facts on Bobby Robson and report back to our listeners next week on exactly the trajectory of his career. The other key moment, I think, politically for Italia ninety was that England clubs, English clubs, were banned from playing in European competitions at that point because of the Heysel Stadium disaster in nineteen eighty five. And the year earlier, in 1989, you'd had the, the Hillsborough Stadium disaster in which, um, was it, 92 Liverpool fans died. I mean, traumatic and horrific event. So Italia 90 lifted the cloud, this sense of despondency around English football, after which English clubs were readmitted into European competition. So it was a great moment of change for football. And the, the image of Paul Gascoigne weeping openly on the pitch during the semi-final against 
Germany was an enduring image, John, of that period, wasn't it? Yeah, I just I wanted a whole podcast on Gaza stories on the basis of this. There's some great stories after he signed for Lazio, but that's perhaps that's, that's, that's another, for next that's time. That's for next time. Yeah, I mean that that was a significant moment. You're right. There was a kind of a, a hooligan centric cloud over English football. It's also the prelude to the sort of excitement around the Premier League. And I remember what you know what, what happened with Euro '96 thereafter, and a lot of um, particularly Manchester United fans that you know thought there was a lot of Johnny come lately. Sort of, in, football became too middle class, too respectable thereafter so it had it had both that opening up to the world again but also that kind of more authentic um side to it you know it wasn't fashionable to wear your england shirt and be you know but down the pub supporting the england team because people thought you might hit them in the head with a pint glass um, that's right no, so, so it's it, clearly a kind of hinge moment a hinge tournament because it was the end of the old football and the beginning of the new football and the premier league was two years away and the whole globalization of the game and dare I say it, as it's the new statesman, the embourgeoisment of the game. On that rather pompous note, I think we should close the first podcast. As your guest, John, can I ask you for a prediction for this tournament, 2018? Uh, yeah, OK. Well, I was going to go to the bookies and put some money on England just because I think <laughs> the law of averages suggests they might do quite well. But if you had to push me, I think France will do very well, even though I think Lauren Koscielny, is, is he injured? He's injured, yeah. Um, I, I, I don't think that they're going to miss Lauren Koscielny. I actually think he's a huge weak point. Um, so they've got a very good goalkeeper. They've got decent defence and they will score against anyone. Um, a lot of it depends on whether Pogba uh, manages to put the right so boots you're, on. you're going for France? I'm going for France. But you're going to put some money on England? Just to make life more interesting. Stephen, I'm going to ask you next week, I think, because you'll be back. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to political football the new statesman's new world cup podcast thanks for listening to political football we'll be back next week with another episode in the meantime you can send us your questions and comments for future episodes via twitter i'm on at stephen kb and jason is at jason cowley ns of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.